Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome. This is episode 33 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Mainman artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. What about uh, when you're making love? Do you feel real then? I'm not quite sure of the definition. Do you feel as fulfilled as when you're performing? Oh, yes. Main Man founder Tony DeFries worked with a very diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Cindy Bullens, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, David Bowie, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. I ran into him and uh, this guy, Tony DeFreeze, in New York, Maxis, Kansas City. The Stooges had broken up. We got kicked off Electra for making Funhouse because nobody, you know, sold Zilch. I knew it was going to sell Zilch, you know, but I made it anyway because I knew it was really good. In this episode, we're telling the story behind the chart success of Peter Noon's hit version of David Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things, which was released 50 years ago. This was the first solo single for Peter, who'd scored an incredible run of hits as lead singer with Herman's Hermits, beginning with I'm Into Something Good in 1964. Working with legendary hitmaker Mickey Most, the band charted hits every year from 1964 to 1970. When Mickey began working with Peter on recording songs for his solo career in 1971, he chose Oh You Pretty Things. At the time, Tony DeFries and Mickey Most had been working together for several years and had a very successful partnership so were ideally suited to ensure the song became successful for both Peter and David. DeFries takes up the story. A million dead-end streets. This is what David Bowie says on the song Changes. He talks about his time is running wild. I still don't know what I was waiting for. My time is running wild. A million dead-end streets. And every time I thought I got it made... The taste was not so sweet. Here's somebody literally writing down 10 years of frustrated efforts to make his mark in a space where he absolutely feels that he belongs. He absolutely believes that he ought to be important and successful and recognised. But he's not. And he doesn't know why. And in a way, this is a song that addresses many, many, many frustrations, especially of people in that time of their life, between teenage and adult, early adulthood, who don't know what to do, which direction to follow. And when they do follow what they think is the direction, David started out, for example, drawing things, a bit like Andy Warhol, But he couldn't draw the things he wanted to. He had to draw the things that he was willing to be paid for, that people would pay for him to draw. So he ended up drawing things that he didn't want to draw and unhappily said, I don't want to do this. This is not how I want to have my life. Turning to music, 
ought to have been a release, but it wasn't, because once again he was making music that people didn't appreciate, didn't get. When I first heard that particular song, Changes, when David first played it, I immediately recognised there was something very special about the song. Not so much because of its appeal to the science fiction element of aliens or the idea of a golden age or the homo superior theme. These were all incidental, but the real message of the song for me was the expression of frustration, of uncertainty, and the belief, or the faith, if you like, that you could actually overcome. And what he talks about, strange fascination, fascinating me. It's an early suggestion of a song that he later wrote and recorded on Young Americans, Fascination. The fascination of what you might become, daydreams, ideas, ambitions, all wrapped up in this one song. The same time that we made a demo version of that song, we also made a demo version of Oh You Pretty Things, another song that proved very important for David because it was simple enough that you could interpret it as a pop song. And this is significant because getting other people to record your songs is what makes songwriters popular and gives them a chance to become important artists. And you can just look at people like Dylan to see that at work because when Bobby write, write about certain elements, American performers, especially bands, The Birds, for example, took up those songs. Peter, Paul and Mary took up those songs. People who were really not in Dylan's space, not in that sort of freedom fighting, forecasting the future, a hard rain's going to fall. They didn't do that. But Johnny Cash recorded It Ain't Me Babe, which because he did it as a country artist, because he had a huge following, became an enormously important song. Although, looking at Dylan's overall catalogue, there are much more important songs. Blowing in the Wind, a much more important song. But what appealed to Johnny Cash was the way that he could turn that into a duet. It became almost like we're writing I Got You Babe ahead of time instead of It Ain't Me Babe. So this is where David had a peculiar and probably what's made him a long-lasting influence, similar to Dylan. The ability to put into a song more than the song would imply on its own, to make it something that people were moved by, influenced by, remembered. Pop songs don't often do that. Joni Mitchell's songs do that. Sam Cooke's songs do that. Otis Redding's songs do that. These are great songs that stand up to the test of time, and not many pop songs really do that. Now, Mickey most had a very, very simple skill set. 
He wasn't a good songwriter. He wasn't a good performer. He wasn't particularly good at any musical instrument. He was one of the first people to really get a grasp on how you could make, as a recording, a song that would allow people to be moved. And so he did that, for example. Lots and lots of songs he recorded with Brenda Lee, recorded with Herman's Hermits, he recorded with the Nashville Teens, many, many others, and made hits for them, often with songs written by songwriters that I represented or worked with or managed in the early 60s. I met Mickey in 1964 when he had completed, in a very short time frame, recording a song called The House of the Rising Sun with a band called The Animals. That band had been playing that song, which was their version of it. It was an old blues spiritual song from America. And Alan Price, particularly, and Eric, had reworked it so it became a song that could and did fit into a rock and roll framework. Interestingly, Dylan had recorded the song before they did. And of course, as always with Bobby, a different version of the song. More like um, the death of Hattie Carroll, probably, his version. But anyway, what happens with Mickey is he goes around England, especially the North Country, which is fairly good at producing bands. And he goes to bars and clubs looking for bands. And he, what he's listening for is a song that he can turn into a four-minute pop song, preferably a two- to four-minute pop song because he knows it won't get played in the UK if it's more than three minutes long. But in America, if you don't get radio play in the first two minutes, you can forget your song. So he has to have songs that can fit into a two- to four-minute pattern. And... Most of them are throwaway, but The House of the Rising Sun turns out to be, and primarily because of Burden's voice, Eric Burden had an astonishing voice, it turns out to be a huge success. And you'd think, okay, Mickey should be dancing around the studio, clapping his hands, whoopee, we've got a number one worldwide song, but he's not. And why isn't he? Well, Mickey had come back from performing as one half of the Most Brothers in South Africa, brought back a lovely girl, Christina, who became his wife. That was the bonus. The downside was he came back to England, had failed to make it in South Africa, mostly because he played to black and white audiences and eventually got kicked out by the South African regime at the time and not allowed to come back. So he was in England, he was broke, he was driving a minicab to make a living, still looking for bands to record, still recording with session musicians, four of whom later turned into Led Zeppelin, but that's another story. 
But anyway, you think, okay, somebody who's literally playing in the underground for pennies should be very happy to have a hit song. Here's the problem. And this is why I started working with Mickey in the first place. He had been raising money from whoever would give him money to go and make a record so that he could carry on making records, invariably singles at this point. And the idea was that if the single took off, then he'd share the revenue from that single with that investor. But Mickey wasn't sophisticated about investing and contracts and any of that. So he frequently simply agreed, ultimately with about six different investors, to give them half of his earnings without specifying which record, because at the time he didn't know which record he was going to use the money for. He was simply looking for money to be able to record something he heard when he heard it. So it was very hit and miss, you see. So, and most of these recordings, of course, were made for record companies like CBS or Decker or whoever, one at a time. In other words, he didn't have the right to the artist or even the rights to the record. All he had was the right to a producer royalty as an independent producer. Record companies very happily used him because A, he made hits, and B, he had great um, abilities to make cheap, viable recordings, which is what they probably most appreciated. <laughs> this chap can go into the studio and make a recording for less than most other producers, especially the ones on staff. So when... House of the Rising Sun took off and at the same time four of his other recordings for different record companies took off Mickey found himself with an enormous headache he'd effectively promised 300% of his income to other people and that doesn't really work on any basis so that's how he turned up on my doorstep effectively Lawrence Myers, who I was in business with at the time, had been working with some of the writers that knew Mickey, and lo and behold, when this problem came along, he said, you better go and talk to Tony. And Mickey came to talk to me and produced various bits of paper and all the sad stories, letters he'd got from all these investors, in some cases, companies that they'd set up that he was a director of, even bank accounts that they'd set up that he had access to. And it was looking very bleak because they were all saying, we're going to sue. <laughs> and indeed, they did sue. So when we had a lawsuit, we had to decide, like, what are we going to do with all these investors? Well, there's a nice quirk in contract law, especially in England, but it's actually true in America as well, and many other systems. But the legal system in the UK and the US is very similar. So basically, what the law of contracts says is that the parties to a contract have to have the same understanding. In other words, their intent has to be the same. If, for example, someone's going to buy a piece of property from a person who owns a piece of property. They both have to understand, A, you own it, B, 
I want to buy it. C, I will give you a certain amount of money for this specific property. And you will tell me that you have absolute title to it, that nobody else owns it. If they do, what interest do they have and so on. If you don't do that, then the contract becomes largely unenforceable because you can't demonstrate that the parties were of the same mind when they made it. So my approach was to say, as a legal matter, clearly nobody would intend to pay 50% of what they were going to receive from a specific recording unless the recording was identified. And if it wasn't identified, that left the parties open to not having made a binding contract. Because without identification, simply contracting to say, I'll pay you half of my income, without saying what the income is coming from, what it's going to be, what it relates to, what it's derived from, doesn't permit you to have a binding contract. I put this case to various lawyers involved for the various litigants <laughs> and suggested to them that they might walk away rather than pursue Mickey, who, of course, now was owed a great deal of money that he couldn't collect from a bunch of record companies who were quite happy to keep the money but wouldn't pay it to anybody else either. So this is the pot that everyone was fighting over. So what I said was... If you can't show that you have intent, that the contract was specific, then this is going to be a lost case, and I'm willing to go forward with that. In some cases, some of the investors were willing to say, we did know what he was going to record, or we found out that he'd recorded X. Now, of course, if they said we found out we, that he recorded X and we'd prefer that one rather than another one that puts them back in the same place that they didn't have any kind of binding contract if on the other hand they said they knew he was going to go and record Lulu or they knew he was going to record the Nashville Tears with this particular investment and that he made a record thereafter with the Nashville Tears that earned revenue they could ask for revenue on that but again, most of them had failed that test. We ended up settling with one or two of them that met the test, and the rest of them went away. At that point, Mickey became a wealthy record producer, and then he had his second huge problem was, how do I collect all this money and not pay taxes on it if I'm living in England and I'm an English taxpayer? Because when I get to a certain threshold... I'll have to pay 98% of it to the taxman. And to solve that problem, we have to introduce another character into the story. I was living in a nice little flat in West London and quite happily enjoying a quiet evening at home, which was sort of probably one o'clock in the morning, actually. <laughs> but I've always been a late-night person. And... I hear a honking outside my window. I look out, and it's Mickey. He's driving a Rolls-Royce that he bought for cash from Jack Barclay's showroom in Barclay Square. That was convenient that it wasn't really Jack Barclay. He just called himself that because he was in Barclay Square, and he could be Barclay Square Rolls-Royce. 
Mickey had walked into the showroom a few months earlier and told the salesman that he wanted to drive the Rolls-Royce that was on prime display, nice convertible corniche, out of the showroom. And the salesman said, in a very upper-class English Italian voice, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't believe you could afford this vehicle. And Mickey was outraged. He said, of course I can. And the salesman said, well, I don't believe you can. Mickey promptly came to our office and demanded that we produce the 20-odd thousand pounds in cash that he needs to buy the Rolls-Royce. The exact sticker price just shows you what the status of class was in England in the 60s, that somebody who actually themselves couldn't afford to buy the car, but simply had a better accent and almost certainly a better education, was willing to miss out on the commission from the sale simply because they didn't believe someone who spoke with a Cockney accent and looked a bit scruffy could afford the car. Very foolish. I never took such a view. I had lots of people come to me looking scruffy and speaking strangely. And if they had a problem, I sold it or I tried to solve it. That was my perspective. Mickey was very much a what the English would have called a hippie at the time. He was destructured. He was careless about what he was wearing. He was somewhere between a South London and a Bow Bell's boy, so he would have spoken with a distinctly Cockney accent. And nobody in England, and that's kind of it's what um, that lovely musical was about, My Fair Lady. Nobody in England believed that you could be well-to-do or comfortable if you didn't have a good accent. It wasn't true up north so much, because up north you had a whole bunch of uh, people, mill owners and owners of companies that made stuff and wealthy farmers. And they spoke with strong northern accents, but they were recognised as being people who might have enough money to buy a Rolls-Royce. But somebody who came from Liverpool and spoke like John Lennon wouldn't have been able to buy a Rolls-Royce <laughs> unless people realise, oh, he's a Beatle. Well, of course, we'll sell him a Rolls-Royce. No problem. If he's a Beatle, he can buy a Rolls-Royce. But you see, that that was the presumption. So people like um, Brian Duffy or people like uh, David Bailey they often had a hard time with the establishment, but they made fun of the establishment. They just said, huh, what do you know? I can make more money taking a picture than you can <laughs> doing whatever you're doing, so I don't care. But it was a very distinct problem, and like I say in My Fair Lady, you see Eliza's father, who's a dustman, ends up getting rich because he's got this philosophy that appeals to an American visitor who hears about his philosophy which is of course the philosophy of not worrying about whether you have anything just be happy and comes out in a nice song called i'm getting married in the morning roll out the barrel lovely song and of course eliza becomes this enormously well-spoken girl 
and moves from being somebody who would only be allowed in to clean the floor to somebody who can be passed off as a princess at a ball. So you see, that's what America didn't do, which is why people in America were able to transcend the boundary very much easier. But it's what England and France and Germany and almost all of Europe still did. They had a very rigid class system and you got trapped in it. And if you didn't just want to go and work in a factory or a mill, you were stuck. And that's what prompted a lot of people in the 60s, especially young people, to say, I'm not going to put up with this. So he's there and he's honking and he's saying, tone, tone. I said, well, what's going on, Mickey? He said, I want you to come and check out this geezer. I said, well, where, where are we going? He says, I'm making a recording at Kingsway and I've got this American geezer who's come to talk to me and I need you to check him out. So I go off in the Corniche. We get to Kingsway Studios. There's a short, stocky American with a, not quite a crew cut, but definitely a buzz cut, short hair. And I'm introduced to him as Alan Klein. And Alan and I start talking and... Mickey goes back to recording. He didn't want to be interrupted in the first place. That's why he came and got me. And Alan starts talking about deals that he's come to England to make. He says he's come to England to sign up Mickey and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Donovan, which is quite a nice lunch list for that moment in time. I mean, this is 1964. The Rolling Stones are having... Hits, the Beatles are having hits. Everyone that he wants to sign up is an important member. The reason he started with Mickey, I think, is because Mickey is... And by the way, we're now in 1969. We're not back in 64 now. We've moved on. I think in Mickey's case, because Mickey was so successful with English acts that were making records and then getting into the American charts and Alan was right he was very very good at spotting trends his thought was that this guy is going to end up being a major producer on a global basis not just in the UK and so he's going to need me Alan to make sure he gets to keep his own recordings and manage his revenue and his taxes. And this is essentially what Alan was offering to do. He was saying, look, whatever record deal you've got with whatever record company, for whatever artist, whether it's you, the Beatles, or whether it's you, the producer, I can make it better. And I can collect all the money that you haven't collected because you didn't know that you wrote it. And I can give you future rights to your own recordings and I can make sure you don't pay any taxes. It's quite a nice offering. And he's actually saying to people, because he's done the work of investigating how much they're owed, he was always very well prepared, Alan. So he says to the Beatles, I'll give you X million pounds. He says, the Rolling Stones, I'll give you X million pounds. The Rolling Stones, who've never had access to very much money because they spend it as fast as they make it, and have not taken our advice to leave England so they don't become subject to taxes 
which means they can't collect a lot of the money that's due to them, they all go through the exercise of saying, well, here's this guy from America who's handled the Dave Clark Five and Sam Cooke, etc., etc., and he's going to give us X million pounds, and nobody else is offering to give us X million pounds, so why not? The fact that these people had managers in place didn't deter Alan. He assumed that he could talk the managers around or displace them. So in this first discussion, he tells me what his plan is, he tells me why he's in England, and he tells me that he's interested in this particular collection of artists and that Mickey is one of the people he'd like to sign up. And I said, okay, I'll talk to Mickey about it when he's finished recording. And Alan invites me to lunch at the Inn on the Park. I would say the following day was actually it's the same day because we're already in the early hours of the morning. And off he goes. Then I talk to Mickey and tell him that um, Alan's very sharp. He knows a lot more about the record industry than anyone I've met before. And he may be able to do what he promises, but he's also, possibly, he could be a crook. So when I go to have lunch with Alan, he greets me very cordially, introduces me to his wife. He's taken two whole floors at the Inn on the Park, on London's Park Lane, for himself, his wife and his staff, <laughs> who he's brought with him. Um, and... He orders us lunch, and then we sit down, and then he says, why do you think I'm a crook? And it's typical of Mickey, who doesn't ever hold back, that he would tell him that. I said, well, you have to recognize that Mickey's a cockney, and they've got a peculiar sense of humor. They like to uh, get people agitated and see if they can you know, rile them up a bit. So I did say that, if you could get the best of the crooks who were running record companies, then you must be pretty smart. So after that, Alan and I became very good friends. We worked together for some years. And during that time, of course, I worked with him on the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Donovan. And he did do, as promised, we provided a structure for Rack Records, which became a label that Mickey owned and is still in, in place with a beautiful studio that's very popular. And Rack Records then had a string of hits that Mickey produced, an artist that he was able to manage and has still a very worthwhile, valuable back catalogue. I think when Mickey died, he was worth close to £100 million, which isn't bad for a Cockney lad playing in the subway, is it? That's how I got involved with the animals and with Mickey and ultimately, of course, with David. That's Tony DeFries explaining how he came to work with Mickey Most, who chose David Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things as Peter Noon's first solo single 50 years ago. In the next episode, Tony and Peter recall the recording session at Kingsway Studios in London, which included an appearance by David playing piano, which he then repeated on Top of the Pops a few weeks later. 
there are some great pieces of rock memorabilia that are part of an ever-growing archive of mainman documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Mainman Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history, and you can find it at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>